So we're, we're in a new series, Things Jesus Never Said. Today I want to talk about Jesus Never Said, Go Do What Makes You Happy. He didn't say, go into all the world and preach whatever makes people happy. He didn't say, whoever wants to be my disciple must affirm themselves, avoid the cross, and follow their heart. Ask and it will be given to you because you deserve it. Tell people, you can't help who you love, so call your lust love and you're good. So there's some things that Jesus did say and there's things that he didn't say, but he didn't say just go and do whatever makes you happy. That's kind of the mantra of our culture today. And people kind of want to put a twist on some of the things that Jesus said to make it, you know, I guess more palatable. So this is a great story about Jesus and the Pharisees are trying to catch him, get him to say something that they can accuse him of. John chapter 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that he might have, they might have grounds to accuse him. So this is complicated because it is true. According to the law of Moses, she... And the man she was caught with should be stoned. So she was caught in the act. Isn't that what it said? Where's the man? She was caught in the act, but she wasn't alone. So where's the man? So Jesus realizes this is a setup. Of course, he knows their hearts anyway, and he knows it's a setup. So if Jesus agrees to punishing this woman by stoning her, and their Pharisees are willing to offer this woman, really, in a sense, as a sacrifice to catch Jesus in something. So Jesus recognizes that if he agrees with the Pharisees in this obvious trap that he is set by the Pharisees, that he's condoning them killing this woman, not really knowing if the details are true, if it's just someone they've accused And he also knows that if he says, well, you need to let her go, that he can be seen as condoning adultery, right? So the Pharisees and sometimes Christians, we have to be careful because we have the truth and we know the truth. In other words, we we know that there are black and white truths, there are or biblical truths that we have to be careful. The Pharisees use the law to judge and condemn sinners and, and to give them a reason to separate from them. In other words, they, they use judgment as a reason not to care about people. In Luke chapter 15, verse 2, it says, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. This is talking about Jesus and he was eating with sinners. This man receives sinners. He receives them. He's nice to them. And he eats with them. 
So this was an accusation against Jesus. So the Pharisees used the law to condemn sinners and give them a reason to separate from them. Uh, So much so that if when they went to the marketplace, if they bumped into someone that was a sinner, then they would go home and ceremonially, ceremonially wash to cleanse themselves. That's why Jesus told them, you're so concerned about the, the outside of the cup, but you're not concerned what's on the inside, which is full of, is vile and wretched. It's in the inside of your cup's in bad shape. You're not worried about that. You're worried about the outside of the cup, how it looks on the outside. John 8, 6. They were saying this to testing him. The whole purpose of this was to catch Jesus so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. And we don't know what he wrote, which would be handy. Right? We don't know. He doesn't say what he wrote on the ground. The word is, is grapho. Like we would say graph. The word grapho or ingrapho. And it's the same word used in the Septuagint. That's the Hebrew translated into Greek. It's the same word that is used when God used his finger to write the Ten Commandments in the original stone tablets that Moses broke. In other words, they were, it says they were written with the, they were in gravo. They were, they were written with the finger of God. So Jesus, who is God, right, is, in, is writing on the ground. And so what is he writing? Is he, write, is he writing out the Ten Commandments just for them to see? You know, we don't know. Was he writing down the sins of the accusers? I mean, did he, did he write down, you know, did he write down Beverly and look over at one of them and go, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I got you. I mean, did he write down, you know, greed and look over at, you know, Bob over there in the corner smiling? Bob's my favorite name in sermons. I don't know if you noticed that. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And this without sin is like the highest standard. It's not without sin. It's without even wanting to sin. Anybody in that category? There's nobody in that category. Have you noticed it's easy to see the sins of others, but also easy to overlook our own sins? One of the things that I've, I've said is that we judge other people by their actions, and we judge ourselves by our intent. In other words, how we, how we think it ought to be we look at other people and say, well, they, they ought not do that, but, you know, <laughs> they can't afford to drive a car like that. I could, but they can't. I don't know. You know, I can remember years ago, a long time ago now, uh, back when every church had Sunday morning services, Sunday night services, and Wednesday night services. And we stopped having Sunday night services. This is a long time ago for us. We stopped having Sunday night services and and went to small groups and started having small groups on Sunday night. There's a couple of things that happened. One, uh, we were like, <laughs> to some people, the devil, uh, because we had changed, you know, you just couldn't do that. It's just not, it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That's the way it was supposed to be. If you change that, you were, you were 
against the, the word, word of God. But we had people in the church that left the church because we, started have, we quit having church on Sunday night and started having small groups. The interesting thing about the people who left the church is the people who left the church did not come to church on Sunday nights. They just didn't want to go to the kind of church that didn't want to have Sunday night services. In other words, so they thought everybody else ought to go on Sunday night, but they're busy. Or they got a lot to, you know, they had more important stuff than going to church on Sunday night. So it's just funny how we are. We judge other people by what we see them do. We judge ourselves by our intent. What we think we would do or we ought to do or we would want to do, we often give ourselves kind of a buy. John chapter 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he said, anybody without sin cast the first stone. Anybody who doesn't even want to sin, who, who would not even consider sin, if you're one of those who would never sin, then you cast the first stone. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. Why? Why, why the older ones? They had sinned longer. That's right. They had messed up more often. They had more to be aware of. Now, I don't know if this is true of you, but when I was younger, I was more idyllic, idyllic and more judgmental. In other words, I thought I knew it all. So when someone didn't meet that standard, I was really judgy of them. As I've gotten older, I've gotten less judgy. Not, not, totally un, not totally without judgment. Less judgy. You know why? Because I've messed up so many times myself. And so I got more graceful. A little, a little more graceful. So the, the older ones, they're, you know, so they're realizing that they're not without sin. They recognize that first, and they, they leave. And in straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And he said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. And Avi says, Go now, leave your life of sin. Jesus did not condemn her. That means he did not trap her in her sin. He wasn't trying to catch her in her sin. Jesus is not trying to catch you in your sin. But he did judge her as a sinner, right? Because he said, go leave your life of sin. So he didn't condemn her, and the word condemn means to judge. So he didn't judge her, but he judged her. He didn't judge the way the Pharisees judged to condemn. Jesus judged in a different manner, not to separate from her. He judged her to separate her from her sin. His judgment being a righteous judgment, he was judging to help her be free. He was saying, go, be free of your sin. Be free. Break free of this bondage. See, we want, to use, we want to use judgment in a righteous way to help people not to separate from people. We want to have righteous judgment. We want to recognize, I mean, you, have, you use judgment all the time. You're judging all the time. You're judging me right now. 
Stop it. <laughs> but we do, don't we? We judge every. I mean, some of you are thinking, look at those shoes. <laughs> this is my favorite pair of shoes. I made them by sewing together a bunch of old tennis balls. See, we, we don't want to judge in a, a way to separate ourselves from people like we're better than they are. True judgment would help us to realize we're not better than anyone. The only difference we have is that we've asked Jesus to cover the weakness of our inability to keep the law and that we recognize we need a Savior. That's not, it's not because we say, well, I'm better than you. I'm not better than you. I've been a preacher 38 years. I'm not better than you. The only thing that makes me different is Jesus. Learning to depend on Jesus. So what we want to help people do is we want to use judgment, help them realize you can lay down this sin and learn to depend on Jesus. Because, hey, when we get to heaven, we're going to, they're going to say, didn't we do a good job? Didn't we do a good job? No, we're going to say, we're going to fall down and say, thank you, Jesus. Because we didn't do a good job. But he did. Jesus didn't say, though, go and, go and do what makes you happy. Yeah, we got rid of these jerks who were accusing you. Now go back to your adulterous relationship. I don't condemn you. Go back. He didn't say that, did he? Follow your heart. What's your heart saying? Go back to your husband. Go back to your lover. Just do what's in your heart. Doesn't matter what you do. You can't help who you love. The most important thing is for you to be happy. So it doesn't matter who you hurt in the process of making yourself as happy as possible because the most important thing is be happy. He didn't say that, did he? Because you deserve to be happy. You ever hear that? I mean, these are the mantras of our culture. You deserve to be happy. You don't. You deserve the wrath of God, but by the grace of God, you receive something better in Christ. So he says, he says, go now, urgently, go now. There's an urgency to it. Go now, leave your life of sin, be different, be free. So why do we sin? Why do we fall into sin? Because it's fun. The Bible calls it, the Bible says it's the pleasure of sin for a season. We give in to the temptation of sin because sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience. It doesn't offer it, but it promises it. Sin, you'll find, is often the path of least resistance. It's, in other words, it's, there's already a, a downhill flow. The current's already washing the houses down the river. It's easy to just get caught up in it. It's easier to swim downstream. It's harder to go against the flow. It's cheapest. Why did you, why'd y'all move in together? You know you're not supposed to. We couldn't afford not to. It was easier. Dun, dun, dun. So how does it happen? It always happens gradually. I mean, it's not like nobody wakes up and says, you know, 
I think today would be a good day to screw up my marriage. Maybe even make it where my kids hate me. Nobody does that. But they do it all the time. And they do it gradually. You know, it's men have affairs with women who make them feel good about themselves. And women have affairs with men who listen to them. So it happens innocently. You go to the office and... Somebody at the office compliments you. Oh, you look good today. Oh, I like your new haircut. And your husband didn't notice your haircut. He doesn't even know if you have hair. (laughs) And it gives you a little attention, gives you a little notice, and you're drawn to that because, or maybe she compliments him or he compliments her. And before you know it, you know, you notice that he's liking your Instagram post. I don't know how many families I've seen destroyed because somebody hooked up with an old Facebook friend. Not an old Facebook friend, but an old friend on Facebook from high school or college or from a previous relationship. So, you know, it's, it begins innocently, you know, then it's, you know, maybe you hang out at the office a little longer, maybe you're there a little later. He brushes his arm up against you. You wonder, is it intentional? Before you know it, there are feelings that are happening in your body. You're having physical feelings. You feel like you are in love. It's the same thing that teenagers feel. It's the same thing. In other words, it is a chemical reaction in your body. Your body is becoming attuned to that other person. It's a physical reality. And you feel in lust, I mean in love. But you're actually, actually, your body is chemically responding to that other person. So you, desire, you begin to desire that person. And then so when you do, when that switch changes, then it's easy to look at your existing husband or your existing wife and go, yuck. And you, you change affection. But nobody does it overnight. It's a, it's a drawing away, you know. So he tells her, I, sh- I made a mistake. I should have married someone like you. You're, so, you're such a good listener. You know why he's a good listener? Because he wants to have sex with you. You're, you're so sensitive. No, he's not. He's an idiot. He's missed his wife's last three birthdays. He's not sensitive. He's sensitive to you. You know why? Because he wants to have sex with you. Tim Keller said this, so I'm going to get off that subject. What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the will finds doable, and the emotions find desirable. (laughs) It's close. <laughs> Here's what I think it really says. What the heart most wants. That wasn't in my notes, and he added that in. It was, just, it was good, though. I mean, that would work. The mind finds reasonable. The will finds doable. And the emotions find desirable. 
So in other words, we, if you want to do something, you find a way to justify it and do it. In our culture, with our, our relativistic approach to truth, there's no absolute truth. Here's what people say. Well, it's true for me. It's not true for everybody, but it's, it's true for me. You know, you do you. You do what makes you happy. But there is a truth that's higher than feelings. Without absolute truth, truth is then de- defined by whatever makes you happy. And when the bottom line is happiness, happy, happiness becomes the standard, and a lot of people get hurt in the process. Here's the problem with Christianity that people have. They think happiness and obedience are at odds. and They think you can't be happy and be a Christian. Because we think, if I choose holiness, if I choose following God, that this is going to be a miserable existence. Let me tell you what I believe. I grew up in church. We went to church a lot. I grew up in church. And here's what I always thought. I'm going to wait till I'm old to give my life to Jesus. Because I don't want to go to hell. I mean, who wants to go to hell? That's only a stupid person would say, I, I think I'll go to hell. Uh, I didn't want to go to hell, but I thought, I don't want to give up on all this fun. You know, because you know how much fun you're having as a sinner at 12 and 13 years old. Uh, but, but you look at people and you think, you know, I don't want to have, because those, those old people. And when, I'm, when I say old, I'm talking about, you know, people that are like almost 30. You know, so when I get like almost 30, when, by then I'm too old to have any fun, any more fun. Then I'll give my life to Jesus. I mean, that's the, I mean... That's the concept that, in words, that, that the best life is a sinful life instead of the best life is a life that's lived for God. The, the reality is, though, we need to understand what our Father's like. We have a loving Heavenly Father who wants more for us than for us to just be temporarily happy. Amen. He actually wants us to be eternally happy. He wants what is both for your good now and eternally. He wants you to have the best life now and the best life eternally. Matthew seven eleven. If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. What he's saying is that in comparison to how God loves you, you're evil in comparison to how God loves his children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You have a loving Heavenly Father. And as a parent, you don't give your children limitless candy, even though it makes them happy. How much candy is enough for a child? More until they're sick. They would actually eat until they're sick. You don't let them skip brushing their teeth just because it's unpleasant. I mean, think about it. They're from about, I, I'm not exactly sure of the age. I'm sure it varies with, with children, with boys. But from about eight until they're aware of girls, a boy would not take a bath. They wouldn't. I mean, uh, somewhere in there, there's like, they just don't see the need for it at all. They would never bathe. Once they get to girls, they're in the shower three times a day. But... Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. I'm just leaving it there. Okay. 
So, in other words, you, you make your children do unpleasant tasks. I mean, you, you say to them, go clean your room. I mean, so, so taking a bath is tough for a 10-year-old boy. They don't want to do that. Say to a 14-year-old teenage girl, go clean your room. It'd be like flopping on the ground. Like, it's like, I don't know if she's got a demon or she doesn't want to. You know, I, I can't tell. You know, it's, I mean, it's so it's crazy. But at the same time, even though, so you're going to ask them to do hard things, unpleasant things. But you also want to give them the best life that you possibly can. You're going to sacrifice for the, so that they can have stuff that they want. And it's not even that valuable, but it's something they want. So you're going to sacrifice. You're going to go spend college money to go to Disneyland. <laughs> I mean, not really college money, but you could almost like the first semester you could pay for. Anyway, uh, that's where your Heavenly Father is. Sometimes your Heavenly Father says to you, no. Because sometimes, you know, sometime, you know, with a, a, a kid... A 10-year-old feels like they're 14, and they're wanting to do 14-year-old stuff. They see themselves older, and you see them younger, right? So they're wanting to do more, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're trying to keep them calm down. So sometimes what you say to your kids is, no, you're eight. You can't date. No, no, you're not dating. You have to wait at least till you're nine. But a lot of times it's not yet. No, at 12, you can't drive a car. We're scared enough at 15 and 16 for you to get in a car. When the first time I put one of my kids, Landon, in behind the driver's seat of a car and he went out driving, I went in and called my dad and said, Dad, how do you do this? I said, when does this get better? He said, it doesn't get better. It just gets worse. I said, he said, I used to have to pray for three of you. Now you three kids have been turned into 30. He said, I have to pray for all of you. It's not going to get better. Get used to it. He's like, he's like, you know, put your big boy pants on and get ready for the ride. See, too often we're looking in the wrong place to find true happiness. Look at this, this dolphin on the beach. Now, is he happy? No, he's not happy. Now, what if you piled cash up around him? Maybe brought him an umbrella so he'd be in the shade. How about a pina colada? Non-alcoholic because dolphins can't handle liquor. What if you did? Would he be happy then? No. Why? Because of Dolphin was not made for the beach. You weren't made for earth. You were made for eternity. So there's not anything on earth that's ever going to satisfy the longing in your soul. There's piles of cash, a new car, new shoes, a new hairdo. Hair? <laughs> Nothing. 
a new wife, a new husband, a boyfriend. Nothing's going to satisfy you other than all of those things have a, they're a pleasure for a season. I love getting a new car. Who doesn't love getting a new car? But you know what I hate? You got to pay for it. Then they send you a little payment booklet in the mail. They don't just say, enjoy, be happy. So there's nothing going to satisfy that longing in our soul. Holiness is the pathway to true, true happiness and true joy. Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. He says, go now, leave sin urgently. John 14, 13, Jesus answered and said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. That's the best that the earth can offer. That's the best the world can offer is temporary satisfaction. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst, never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal eternal life. Jesus said, I'm offering you something better than a temporary fix. I'm offering an eternal answer. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis says, don't keep making mud pies in the slum. Jesus says, go, stop sinning, leave your life of sin. Now, some of you are here today and there's stuff going on that nobody knows but you. It's a secret, secret compartment of your life. And in that compartment is sin. And you need to turn from that. Today is a day that Jesus is talking to you and he's saying, go, leave your life of sin. Now, here's the reality. Everyone in this place is going to sin. But there can be a place where you are intentionally harboring sin in your life. You are embracing sin in your life. It could be an affair. It could be a relationship. It could be a gambling addiction. It could be an alcohol addiction. It could be a drug addiction. It could be some area that's got a hold of you. And here's the thing. Jesus wants you to be free. He said to that woman, go and leave your life of sin, not to hold her in bondage, not to say you're a sinner. But he was saying, you are a sinner, but you can be free. That's the good news of the gospel. We're sinners. But Jesus died to set us free. Amen? So let's stand. And just close your eyes for just a moment. Just go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord. David prayed after he'd sinned with Bathsheba. 
and asked for forgiveness. And he said, Lord, you know my heart. Search me and know me. See if there's any wicked ways in me. Lead me in the life everlasting. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would set us free of secret sins. Areas that are holding us where the enemy is using it to hold it over us and say that we're not fit to serve you because we're not good enough. And we're not good enough. Our righteousness is not in ourselves. Our righteousness is in the complete work of Christ on the cross. So we ask you to come and invade those secret areas, invade those places in our life that need redemption, that need forgiveness, that need the chains of bondage broken, that need to, where we need to be set free from sin, where we could go and leave a life of sin. We're weak. We're not going to do this by doing better and trying harder, but we're going to do it by depending upon you. I declare my weakness and my inability to do it on my own. Jesus, I need you. Just say that with me. Jesus, I need you. In Jesus' name, amen.